So Ainsley read for us the parable of the lost sheep. It's funny, I never thought of it as a smelly old ram before. I always thought of it as a lamb. But I love the different retellings of the scripture. And immediately following that passage, in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear this. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together, I am there among them. Thanks be to God. So friends, how many times have you heard people say that they wish life came with a manual? I think we usually hear this when somebody has brought a new baby home from the hospital and they just can't believe there is not one clear definitive instruction book to teach you how to take care of this little person and how to raise them. But homeownership, relationships, navigating life choices, career changes, managing finances, I mean, things get very complicated and we don't always know exactly how to navigate. Life could come with dozens of instruction manuals and clear ones so that like when you go to build an Ikea cabinet, which is something I actually love to do, I love to assemble furniture, you could have you know, pages one through 12 on how you're gonna complete this project. I love that those manuals tell you on the first page exactly what you're going to need. And usually that includes a buddy. Items required for assembly, a flat surface, a Phillips head screwdriver, and another human being. This passage from the Gospel of Matthew gives Jesus words for his followers that are supposed to serve as an instruction manual for how they are supposed to live together in hard times. They were just a small community of people who proclaimed that a man that the state had executed as a common criminal had been raised from the dead and had appeared to them before ascending to be with God the creator. They were just a fringe movement of outcasts, disproportionately the poor, women, marginalized people, enslaved people, and only a few notable converts from dominant social groups, wealthy Gentile men. These people could not go to the courts. They could not seek the protection of law if one of them wronged another one. These courts were already prejudiced against them and they knew they would find no justice there. These people knew they had to figure it out on their own. The empire at first, I think, didn't really notice them. Then it maybe just started to tolerate them. And finally, the empire co-opted their movement. But at this point in time, when the Gospel of Matthew was recorded, the movement was so small, it was barely detected by the powers around it. These were not megachurches. Each assembly 
each little church couldn't have been more spread out than a neighborhood, or how would these people have gathered together to share a meal? It couldn't have contained more people than could fit in a large house. These were people who knew each other face to face, who walked with each other through life. And so we have to imagine that it is this small community where one person fails to follow the way of Jesus, a way of humility, a way of self-giving, of prayer and generosity, of commitment to one another, of love for the most vulnerable. So it's in this small community where someone who you know and love, who you gather around tables with, has wronged you. So this is our instruction manual from Jesus, which says, when this happens, Jesus is gonna make this really simple and clear for us, not like these complicated parables, but here is a step-by-step -step instruction book. You're going to go directly to that person one-on-one. -on -one. You're not gonna stew, you're not gonna stuff it down inside until it makes you ill, you're not gonna gossip, you're not gonna slander that person behind their back, and most importantly, you're not just gonna slam the door on your relationship with them immediately and turn away and say, you wronged me and I'm done with you you're going to go to them. There's no mistake that this passage comes right after the parable of the lost sheep. When I hear Ainsley read that story, I think, oh, that good shepherd. I mean, I'm used to thinking again of this little baby lamb, nice and sweet and clean, but in this story, it's a smelly ram. But you think, oh, that good shepherd is so loving and so tender. You go get that lost sheep, you good shepherd, and I'll be right there behind you cheering you on, you know, you go do that good job. But then we get immediately to the instruction manual and it's you go. Like, wait a minute. I thought you were the good shepherd, Jesus. I thought you were going to go get this lost sheep and turn them around. But immediately you realize, like in a Moses story, wait, me? I I'm the one you want to go fix this problem here? I have to go? It's, it's a little unnerving and a little jarring to think that it's on us. But of course, we are the hands, we are the feet of Jesus. We are the ones who have to go to try to seek this person and to bring them around and to restore that broken relationship. The lamb who wronged you is still precious to the community. So when you go to them, hopefully full of tenderness and pity now rather than hurt and anger, and one-on-one -on -one you try to win them back into a restored relationship, I think it's true, and I think you've probably experienced it in your own lives, that when you have taken this approach, when you have followed this instruction manual, if your goal is to repair the broken relationship with that person, then this is the best way to go about it, and it can solve the majority of the problems. It's only, the manual says, if that best approach doesn't work, that then you can escalate. Then you bring along another brother or sister. If that doesn't work, you bring them before the entire congregation. If that doesn't work, you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. And I think in this passage, that gives us permission that if we have to walk away from people in our lives who continue to hurt us, despite us taking the steps to reach them, despite continually inviting them to come around and try a different way, then it's okay for us to say goodbye. I think some people are not ready to repent.
And if they aren't ready to repent, it's really hard for us. We may forgive them, but it's really hard to continue in a relationship with someone. And I think this passage gives us the blessing that if that's the right decision that we need to make at that time, it's okay for you to end a relationship. God trusts you to make that hard decision until such a time as that person is ready to come around. But in this context, this is what I love about this passage. In the New Testament where it says, then they become like a Gentile or a tax collector, that doesn't mean they're shunned. It means they fall into a special category. I think the message translation says that you are back to square one with that person, but it still means that you hold out a glimmer of hope. You don't shut that door forever. They're now in a category of people who they may at some point be invited back into the fold. I think especially as we approach election season, people are really struggling with how to talk to people and their families who they love. It's hard to know how to communicate over really hard issues. I think everyone has people in their lives who they've had relationships with for a long time who if you got into a political debate with them, you might think that your relationship could be over. And so have you heard terms, I think we're also dealing with this on a national level, and that's where we get terms like call out culture and cancel culture. And canceling this whole idea that somebody's career is over and they are no longer going to um, have any of your time or attention, this works because this, this is for people who are in the public eye and it's based on public shame. So if you're going to say, you know what, I'm not gonna spend my time or my money supporting systems that I don't believe in or backing people with large platforms who are spreading hatred, I don't think that this passage is talking about that kind of thing. Boycotts are powerful because sometimes people aren't gonna hear you until the critique hits them where it hurts. And in capitalism, frequently for famous people, that's in their wallet. So this document isn't talking about democratic elections. It's not talking about capitalism. It's not talking about celebrities who have large Twitter platforms who rile up their fans and spread hate. This is not about how you can spend your time and your money and use your voice. This is about relationships, personal relationships between individual people. This is about people in your lives who you love and share community with. And what I read in this passage is for those people, a manual for grace. This is how God is encouraging us to offer people grace and love and mercy in our personal relationships. So I said earlier that these people didn't have the recourse of any kind of justice system that would have served them. So one of the ways that people describe God is like a judge. We pray for God's justice because we picture God as the one who is going to decide between right and wrong. But the God who we worship is a God of tenderness and understanding and mercy. In the court of God's justice, this is, in this passage, we find the idea that in American legal terms, we would find justification or pardon or clemency. So in the eyes of the person who, in our eyes, the person who has hurt us, we could imagine them as an absolute monster who should immediately be outside the circle of God's grace. But in God's eyes, this person is a lost lamb. In God's eyes, we are supposed to always hold out a glimmer of hope. 
for them to come around. Binding and loosing in this passage are legal terms that would have been familiar to the people who heard this gospel. It meant that the law, which had been given to them, in some cases, things would be forgiven, and in some, things, in some cases, things would be permitted in a legal sense. So it gives the power of pardoning and granting clemency to this very small group of people, to a small group of people in a house church. If you go to someone and say you've wronged me, you also have the power as that small community to say to people, you're forgiven. And in that one-on-one -on -one relationship, you might find, as we say so often, hurt people hurt people. When you, when you come together and you talk about what's happened and the person might have a, a chance to explain why they did what they did. And you might see therapists call this perspective taking. Both of you might have your eyes opened and you both might be able to come to, together to restore your relationship on equal footing. So I, this story came to mind of a person speeding down a highway, going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. In a normal circumstance, the police would pull that person over and maybe take their license away, but at least give them a speeding ticket. And if they look in the car and see there's a woman laboring in the back seat about to deliver a baby, instead, they're going to get a police escort. There are times in which what you're doing, even though it initially appears to be so out of line that someone might say, actually, you are also in need of help. And I think that's the way that God can see our relationships functioning together. So it's a passage about grace and forgiveness. It's a passage about softening the stance that the law takes so that you can give grace and compassion and understanding. So the law can be relaxed whenever the one who's broken it is in greater need of love and compassion than the person who was initially wronged. So we give these things because it's good for the community. It's good for the one who's gone astray. It's also good for us as a community to be merciful. Jesus leads us into a way of how to restore and repair fractured relationships with this image. We are about to come together each in our own homes around our own small tables and we will break bread together. As the familiar hymn goes, bread of the world in mercy broken. We might be so at odds with one another. We might feel so divided. And if this passage, if this manual doesn't help us with a step-by-step -step way of restoring a relationship and coming back together, the communion table is always there for us, reminding us that even in our brokenness, we can come together just as the grains were scattered all over the field. One of the oldest communion prayers says from the Didache, just as the grains were scattered all over the fields, they were knit together. They were kneaded together into one common loaf. We come together around the communion table and Jesus promises where two or three of you are gathered, I am with you. Jesus meets us in community. Jesus promises presence to the community so that we don't have to do this hard work, the hard work of being that lost sheep or of going to find that lost sheep, that work of forgiving the repentant sinner, that hard work of restoring the relationship. Jesus does it with and through us. We discover God 
in relationship. So we come to the table. God asks us to live through the hurt and the pain, to find mercy, to find unity. And as we share the one loaf, the one common cup, despite difference, despite fracture, despite division, we can still be united as one people as we share the bread together. Bread of the world in mercy broken. Amen.